Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can sign up for live Zoom events, including on May the 26th, a conversation with former U.S. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. Coming up on the show today, Olivette Otelli, Professor of History of Slavery at the University of Bristol in the UK, and author of the new book, African Europeans, an Untold history. Uh, Olivette, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So congratulations uh, on the book. And and as you say, right at the very beginning, the term African-European is not necessarily a neutral term. It's even been a provocation for some. Yes, absolutely. I really wanted to get people thinking about geography, um, of course, space, but also the terminology, the lexicon associated with the term and the history around it, of course. And you also say that it could easily have been European-Africans. So so why specifically African-Europeans for the book? Well, it's something I I, um, had a conversation with myself about. It is about the ways in which we define ourselves, but also the outside world defines us. Um, Usually across centuries, uh, people of African descent have been defined by their um, um, uh, links with, with a continent. So I thought, why not use that term? Um, why not to take both identities? And why not start with Africa? Because that seems to be the uh, starting point of all the, the, the connotations, the conversations or the homage and one of the one of the the really nice things about the book is its breadth because as you point out race dynamics play out very differently in different places and across vast expanses of time so how how did you go about drawing out that very broad experience well i wanted to tell long stories i'm fascinated by long long stories and and long histories. And I really wanted people to think about how things change across time, not just uh, in terms of of, of race, racialization and all the rest of it, but really how society shaped the question of race and how it wasn't always like that and how we tend to apply what we've you know, we've learned from the 18th century or colonial uh, era onwards as if it's always been like that. So really wanted to go from as far as I could. Um, And uh, yes. And I, I, I suppose that, I mean, one of the things that you point out, but which is also true for the reader, is that many of the stories are well known, for example, African Europeans in the French Empire or the British Empire, for example, but others much less so. I mean, you you use examples, for example, like of the Danish Gold Coast in what today is Ghana. So although uh, people know many of these stories, there are many that are still really under told? Yes, it was about the question of erasure as well, or the question of amnesia, because untold to whom and for whom. Um, and it, it was also an ideal um, way to think about how to, to, to bring those threads, all these threads together, but also how some of the stories have been um, lost because, I mean, Septimus Severus, for example, we know about him in Britain, but not necessarily in France, uh, not necessarily in, in, in Germany or Italy. 
So it's about really bringing a global history and story with a coherent narrative because I saw coherence in all these stories. Yeah, and I I love that idea of of coherence because and the the long story because again as as you point out African Europeans living in Europe are at the the crossroads you say of the, these complex intersecting identities. So, uh, kind of again, uh, how do you what what are the common common currents that you draw out of that experience? Um, the, the common commonalities are about their sense of place, the fact that they need to claim or they, they have been claiming places um, for various reasons. For example, some of them will claim Africa for political reasons, but also uh, because of, of family connections, of course. But they also claim the places where they live, the places that made them who they are at that at particular point in time. And it was very important because all these... Um, all these backgrounds and all these stories and legacies are in uh, are really what shaped them. So place and time play a huge role in the formation for me, as I see it, formation of identity and identities. And it's it's interesting your pains actually to point out that this is not just a story of empire and colonization. That it's the story of migration between Africa and European countries. It goes back over centuries, and that many of the the encounters were far from peaceful, but but many of them indeed were kind of much more cultural and much more about interaction. So it, it, it's important to to get that balance. It seems to me as one of the lessons of the book yes that's that's when one of the aspects that was really really interested in is the kind of um the network of of ideas you know the intellectual journeys of so many people traveling uh, in the third century or the fourth century traveling um easily and confidently across across europe across africa exchanging ideas constructing educating as well fronto and others and um it's just the kind of story and exchanges that to my it, to my knowledge have not been taught to us uh, as 21st century or 20th century rather for me um students and i really wanted these stories to be well known and and some of them, uh, it, it struck me, are stories which are, are hiding in plain sight. For example, you spend a lot of time talking about uh, St. Maurice, that, uh, which is a story that was incredibly well known in an earlier time. But I wonder how many people today would really be able to say why St. Maurice was so significant. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? My encounter with St. Maurice was about... <laughs> Um, family connections in in Germany, and how you know for them it's it's part of um, the legacy, the heritage. It's part of also the architecture, the statue of Saint Maurice, part of the the architecture and the landscape, uh, the urban landscape, and and how they see no contradiction uh, between having a, a, a black man standing there and uh, claiming Christianity, uh, when actually that man was was born in what we know nowadays to be a Egypt Thebian army. Um, so so I, I like the contradiction in the fact that unfortunately some of these stories have been uh, forgotten, not in their entirety. It's it's really what's lurking on the outskirt of memory that I'm also interested in, what has been left to us. 
and uh, you know, I guess Saint Saint Augustine is uh, is another one of those figures. So so much so that uh, he is he's part of what is sometimes described as as the canon, and and people are sometimes shocked to discover that he is, uh, to use your phrase, an, an African European. Yes, people don't know about that. And um, it, it's not necessarily to claim their Africanity that I wanted to put them there, but just to remind people that identities were or seem to have been much more fluid, in, in a sense, much more generous. Um, those people saw themselves as belonging to several worlds, and that was okay. And that that is often reflected in art. You talk about, uh, for example, the way that in the the story of the three wise men, uh, how often one of those uh, one of the wise men is depicted as an an African uh, in uh, in Renaissance depictions of the story. Yes, it was accepted. <laughs> you know, the three wise men. One of them um, uh, looking visibly with a darker. Uh, a darker skin and it was the stories of the bible are some of the stories that um people are more likely to accept however the painting the, the really truly highlights the beauty in in terms of the acceptance of those those stories so the skills of the artists were one thing but the fact that these were seen as the high you know the um uh, a kind of uh, common ground where people could 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 accept uh, what is what is seen as otherness and i like that because paintings and art in general are uh, it sounds like a cliche but i really i truly believe that this is the point the meeting point where we put um our um you know i our ideologies aside and just admire the beauty and come together really and is I mean, is the the Mediterranean, particularly during that period, kind of does actually seem to be a very fluid society? You tell the story about the Duke of Florence, for example. There's the uh, the interaction uh, between uh, the Moors uh, in uh, with the Moors in Spain and so on. That it's it, it's it, even the way that uh, the Alhambra Palace remains standing uh, and is left intact uh, by. A, a Spanish king uh, who is kind of deeply religious. It kind of seems to constantly point to an ambiguity or a, a kind of a, a two worlds living side by side, but also interacting. Yes, fascinating, fascinating stories about the Mediterranean. That's why I wanted to talk about again. It's another provocation: Black Mediterranean, because we think about Greece, we think about, of course, Rome. Well. Um, nowadays, Italy, we think about um, all these uh, great civilization, but they were not, you know, in isolation. They were not living in isolation. They were communicating, um, trading together, fighting against each other as well um, for power. And those stories are very important, not just in terms of circulation of, of goods and, and military um, stories, but in terms of transmission of knowledge, uh, shared knowledge. and Understanding that they all belong to the same region and therefore they were one people. One people were fighting against each other as well, but one people nonetheless. 
It's, it's interesting how important religion is. At, at one stage in the book, you say actually that religion and opportunity were often the most important elements. Um, how, how do those two things come together? And, and why, why does religion turn out to be so significant uh, in, ter- in terms of the experience of African Europeans? Well, it's, it's interesting because religion was um, acting as a cement but also as a marker of exclusion um, in, in a very, very particular way. If we took some of the, if we took, for example, Juan Latino, um, you know, in Granada, a Christian, but nonetheless, in his writing, he's really urging, subtly, though, very subtly, he's urging the leaders of Spain to, consi- to consider what it means to be a Morisco, which means a Muslim who have been forced to convert to Christianity, what it tells us about the process of, of discrimination, what it says about the so-called other who is defined uh, by through their religion, but who really isn't that different from the Christian. So it, it you know, it was, um, it, it was about bringing people together. But having said that, religion also played a different part. Um, I'm thinking about the uh, confraternities of um, kind of of 15th century uh, Lisbon, you know, the first black fraternities and religion was the main cement amongst those people. I, I, I was I was very struck actually that the fluidity uh, that religion brings. I mean, you you show how the 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 Catholic Church, which is very concerned about conversion, that it tries to make uh, alliances with various African monarchs, who in turn uh, are very often educated in Europe. So that there's this kind of sense of a fluidity of movement of ideas of people, uh, particularly. A, a kind of a, an elite level. Yes, it was exactly the case because it was about an understanding that um, even though they, they they disagreed on on many things, they were um, they more or less share share the same principle: education, um, openness um, with regards to trade. Um, diplomacy seemed to be the most important point in here. Um, and 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 at the same time, it was a, a, wor- a world of um, compromises. You know, when when the military didn't work, you know, you had to find common grounds, and they were already there. So establishing those bases was incredibly important. It was as if you know they were trying to construct a world that would bring the continents together, and. It's incredible because it would have been an incredible um, thing if it, if it it worked really. And you know, some of those compromises uh, that are kind of truly fascinating in the book are the the discussions that you have about um, what you describe as dual heritage children that uh, they could often enjoy the same legal freedoms as white children. Uh, they were very often protected in the particularly in the from the 18th century onwards, uh, and yet would also find themselves discriminated against. So, so what was their life like uh, in European? society? Well, their life were very different, um, very diverse. If we take the case of uh, Chevalier de Saint-Georges in France, he was a nobleman enjoying the perks of um, his father's wealth. He was also working himself, so uh, it's 
not just about, you know, family wealth. It's also about his own achievements. Um, his life was really different from, let's say, uh, somebody uh, who is dual heritage and, and uh, is is living in, um, in in Antwerp or is living in in, uh, in Holland, for example, um, simply because it depended on the status of these people at the time, because the law kept changing. They were trying to police what they saw as black bodies and the invasion of black bodies. It really depending on the law of the land. But yeah, there was this idea of free soil, which meant that normally. Uh, legally speaking, they should not have been um, held in, in, in bondage. You know, they were free men and women, but things didn't work that way exactly, depending on whether you had money or not. Yeah, actually, that's one of the things that comes across really strongly in the book and that you draw out so well that that there there has always been a, a kind of an elite among African Europeans and that not all experiences are the same, that class really does matter in the story that you're telling. Yes, it did. Again, thinking of, about um, the, uh, the ancestor or the grandfather of Alexander Dumas, um, I, I talked about the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, but there are many others who enjoyed that that kind of um, um, elite life in, in European uh, capitals. And it is important to say this because when we think 18th century, particularly 18th century colonial, you know, at the height of colonization and, and the slave trade, you had so many contradictory um, um, not contradictory, but diverse stories. And yet we tend to focus on uh, those who were um, at the bottom of the social ladder and those who were enslaved. They were, of course, the majority, but they were not the only ones. There's another example, and it's um, the first black sheriff, you know, Nathaniel Wells. Um, I didn't have time to talk about him because um, I'm very, very fond of that one in so many ways because he died in Bath, but he was born in the Caribbean. And by the age of 15, for example, he, he was a, a multimillionaire simply because his father from Cardiff had given him the education of um, a rich person and he ended up uh, in England and then in, in, in Wales. So it's a it's a story kind of in in many ways coming back to what you'd said before of opportunity and for many people the experience was bleak but for others it was an opportunity that actually worked very well for them individually. Absolutely, that that was the case. It, I, I mean, we haven't talked very much about slavery. You, uh, it's one of the things that, as I referred to at the beginning, that you're very keen to do in the book is to say that the the experience of uh, of um, African Europeans is not entirely wrapped up with slavery, and yet it does hover over the story too because it's so central to the experience. You, one chapter uh, actually, you um, you entitle uh, and say that the kind of the transatlantic uh, the transatlantic uh, trade, slave trade, uh, actually uh, invents uh, race. What what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that economic success, European economic success, gave birth to so many things. And one of the things was um, the racialization based on um, on the skin tone. In previous centuries, the other could be the Muslim, the other could be the Irish. Uh, the other could be the Jewish. In 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 the 18th century, uh, it's still the case, but um, you know the 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 kingdoms are leaning towards the um, the other being the visibly 
different in in terms of skin tones, and and that is due because of the uh, colonial um, trade and colonization and the slave trade in particular. Even the terms, I can't use them here, but even the terms, the origins of those terms are changing, or some of them born in the 18th century are changing uh, the meaning. Black person becomes a Negro person and vice versa, whereas in previous centuries it wasn't necessarily the case. They were not interchangeable. And and what about the question of reparations for slavery? You you talk about that at the end of the book. Um, you say that it's about the double jeopardy of memory. Former colonizers have erased parts of history by focusing on abolition while refusing to consider the question of compensation, unremembering one's involvement in and then claiming one's superiority in not having been involved in human trafficking. Um, so, I mean, it, it seems to me that this is something that uh, kind of stems from your academic work, but you feel is relevant to the political debate today as well. Absolutely, because one of the things that I do as, a, as an educator is also look at the, the question of abolition and the vast debate um, and the complexity of the debate and the fact that many uh, slave traders uh, became abolitionists after they have been assured that they would receive compensation. So that debate is not just uh, in terms of paying what uh, what's should be paid or could be paid now. It's about a long thread of a conversation that started, you know, um, right after the abolition of the slave trade, and 1807 for for for, for Britain and 1848 for France, for example. And we are only talking about it now or in the last you know, 10 years or so in Britain at least um, uh, more widely when actually that, that debate has been ongoing and the, uh, the kind of economic um, ramification of, of that compensation uh, bill in the 19th century um, had a huge impact on the economy in the country. And I wonder, I mean, what form do you think that something like reparations uh, should take? Oh, that's an interesting debate, isn't it? That's the the golden question. It should take the form that the population decide it should take. And I really mean that. Um, and I'm thinking about what we're doing at the moment in Bristol, um, which is about the university considering all aspects of it, but also the city working towards the, the memorial aspect of it, um, the renaming of certain bu- buildings, but also what it means really. We can't change the past. So what is it about that past that had a huge impact on on certain communities? Economic deprivation, for example, is one thing. Access to education is another thing. And these are important, important questions for 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 way, you know, if we want to learn to live together um, as, as as communities. So it's not just a pocket of money being given to whomever. It's about addressing certain, some of the imbalance that the, that were created by a traumatic past. And and it seems to me that one of the 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 themes in actually in a show not tell kind of way, um, one of the themes of the book is that recognizing that these debates on empire, on slavery, on race, they are uh, very uh, controversial, have been politicized. But you seem to be showing that kind of historians can contribute to those debates without in any way um, sacrificing 
sacrificing uh, objectivity, empiricism, and so on, that in many ways that that is the way in which your work can make a, a broader impact. Well, thank you. Um, it really is what um, my work as a historian is about and, and other, people, other people's work. We are historians. Our job is to kind of share what we've learned, share what we've found out, share the facts, and, and also let society um, um, take, take stock of that, of those stories, think about them, talk about them, and, and, and try and move on by addressing certain um, inequalities. But it really is about accepting the past. That's why it's very hard for me when the past is, when we go back to this idea of, you, oh, you shouldn't talk about this because it's going to hurt this and that community. No, it, it is about putting everything on, down on the table, learning from it um, as much as we can. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I noticed that uh, Mary Beard, uh, the, the classicist, uh, made the point the other day that uh, on the one hand, we have to kind of make sure that we remember what has happened in the past, but we also need to be careful that we don't erase the past, because if we erase the past, then we will genuinely forget the things which have happened in history. So it's a, as you, you seem to be saying something very similar, that it's, it's, a, it's a delicate balance that uh, you're involved in here yes it's it's also a sign of maturity for a society to be able to look at its kind of traumatic past or contentious past uh, in the face and saying okay this happened what do we do now how do we move from there rather than trying to remove some aspect or forget some aspect and so on and so forth so it's it, it and i hope that you know our work as as historians um, is is really about that, it, you know, not necessarily about the um, the uses and the political, um, you know, it, in other words, giving political ammunition to so and so groups, but you know, presenting what we know. And, you know, thinking about, uh, you mentioned Bristol there, there was a, a, an example uh, kind of last year of a statue being uh, taken down and thrown into the, uh, thrown into the harbour. Um, what, what, where do you stand on the question of statues and memorials and buildings which have been named uh, for people who have connections with slavery? What, what should actually happen to those uh, statues? And by by extension, the debate here in the United States has been uh, about, for example, uh, Confederate uh, Confederate generals and so on. And so this is very much something which is not just a, a British or a European debate. Uh, it's something which is very current here in the United States, too. Yes, it's, it's interesting. It's a question I've been asked a lot. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my answer is that it's very democratic. The people of Bristol not nationally, but the people of Bristol need to decide. And I think they have decided in so many ways. So the statue was toppled down, but after a very lengthy, decades-long <laughs> decades debate about what to do with it, it wasn't just a spontaneous uh, kind of um, outcome. Um, and the other thing I was about to say is that as, as a historian, and this is really my personal uh, position, um, and as a, as a black woman, I understand why that statue was offensive to many people. 
you know, walking around, being a child of Bristol and just seeing a slave trader being prominently celebrated. Having said that, I would have loved to see that statue in a museum. And I don't want to divulge too much, but you probably will see it soon. Oh, that 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 sounds like a scoop for the podcast there. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Excellent. And and then fin- finally, uh, Olivette, I mean, uh, kind of thinking more broadly about society, do you feel, uh, as you look at European society and at British society, do you feel hopeful uh, for the future of, uh, Af- of African Europeans of and of African European culture? Yes, it doesn't seem that way at times and what's uh, what's happening outside and the confrontations and the heated moments and the pain. But I'm incredibly, incredibly hopeful. Um, not long ago was asked, um, which period of time would have would you have liked to live? And my answer is now. As as a, a, a black person, my answer is now. But I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone in this because so many things have been accomplished in terms of understanding other communities, understanding and learning to live together. We are even talking about it, you know, publicly, not just in history books. You know, we're having conversation about this. And this is an incredible, it's a sign of, of, of progress for me. And it's a sign that, you know, just like any other collective memory, it's painful, it's difficult, but we will find a way. So the book is African Europeans and Untold History. It's written by my guest, Olivette Otelli, and published by Basic Books. But for now, Olivette, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Oh,